This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan. G'day podcast fans, it's Rowan Leach here, Mixed Farming Advisor for Local Land Services. Today, I'm speaking with Nicole Samadol, who, along with her family, is the owner at Rowley Wines near Orange. Rowley Wines is a boutique winery with around eight hectares under vines, as well as sourcing additional grapes from around the Orange wine region. They have a huge variety of wines on their small property, with the fertile Mount Knobles soils and high altitude making for perfect conditions for cool season wines to grow. In today's episode, Nicole discusses how bushfires in 2018 and smoke taint wiped out their harvests and how this led to diversifying their business through the introduction of a cellar door and agritourism to their vineyard. Through this experience, she highlights how a business strategy and plan was important for achieving her business goals. Nicole also talks about grape production and winemaking with some helpful tips on how to pick a good wine. I sat down with Nicole for this chat at the cellar of Rolly Wines. Let's pop the cork and get stuck in. G'day listeners, today I'm with Nicole Samadol from Rolly Wines, which is on the slopes of Mount Knobles near Orange. This will be the first vineyard we've had on the Seeds for Success, so a big welcome to the podcast, Nicole. Thanks, Rowan. I'm so excited to be here. So we'll just get you to start off by giving me a bit of a rundown here of your business. So our business consists of integrated or end-to-end business that starts with growing grapes in our vineyard here on the property. And we then take those grapes and turn them into delicious wines. We look after the winemaking and the bottling and also all the paraphernalia that goes with getting the wine to market. So that includes bottles, caps, labels, and we obviously are responsible then for marketing and selling the wine as well. A bit going on then. And so obviously on the f- very fertile slopes of Mount Knobles, can you just tell me a little bit more about the production side of the farm? So we're at the micro or boutique end of wine production in Australian terms. If you went to somewhere like Italy, we'd probably be classified as a medium-sized business, but here in Australia, everything's bigger and better. And so we're definitely a boutique producer. So the property in total is about 100 acres and we've got 20 acres or eight hectares under vine on this particular property. And then we have other vineyards in the area where we source fruit as well. So how much wine comes off those eight hectares? We can usually get around 50 tonnes. So our production philosophy is to crop for quality. And by that, I mean, we drop quite a bit of the fruit on the ground to ensure that all the nutrients and growing energy is into a fewer grapes. So we get beautiful flavours, aromatics and delicious wines. Oh, great. I am getting very thirsty here. I think the end of this podcast might entail a trip to the cellar door afterwards. So what are some varieties of your grapes or wines that you have? Unusually, we have a lot of different varieties in the vineyard. So if we start from closest to the cellar door, we have Pinot Gris. We grow quite a bit of Pinot Noir and it's a variety that does particularly well in this region because we're cool climate, high altitude. And we also have Riesling, Sauvignon Blanc, 
Chardonnay, two Italian varieties, Arnaise is a white variety and Nebbiolo the red and a little bit of Gewurztraminer here as well. So have you got room for increasing your scale? Like are you any plans on that end? We have a little nursery where we're growing some baby Chardonnay vines and we're looking to plant those out in the next 12 months. So how do you select a variety going forward? Is it sort of feedback from your customers or something else? A little bit's about feedback and also about having a good range of varieties to suit different customer needs and wants. Is there a favourite amongst your customers? Like is it demand outstripping supply in certain varieties? Well, one of the things that we've tried to do is have a couple of varieties that are a little bit unique and unusual that are also well suited to the growing conditions here in Orange. And the Arnaise, the white Italian variety, and Nebbiolo, the red, have definitely set us apart from some of the other growers in the region and given people a reason to come and visit us. You've said that you're end-to-end in your production. What does that entail? So it entails looking after the vineyard on a day-to-day basis. We have a philosophy that's very hands-on and high attention to detail. So we do spend a lot of time in the vineyard. Because we're not a large-scale producer, we're able to do everything by hand. So that includes the pruning, which happens in winter. So in August, September, we're doing our winter pruning And so we have a team that comes in and helps us with that. And then we do all the harvesting by hand as well. So all our grapes are hand-selected, hand-picked. They go into small buckets so that we minimise the amount of damage to the fruit before it arrives in the winery. So have you got a permanent staff on or are you getting contractors and and labourers in? Yeah, we do rely on contractors. But the great thing is that the team has been working with us for many, many years and they're really part of our extended team. So you've also got a diverse business as well. So can you talk a little bit about those aspects of your business? Diversification has been really important to us, particularly at this smaller end of the growing scale. So having a diverse range of offers for our customers is really important. We started originally as growers which means we would simply grow the grapes and sell them to other winemakers. We recognised that the wines that were being made by our other winemaking colleagues were doing particularly well and obviously, you know, that inspired us to want to make our own wines. So that was a value add in itself from going from growing to making the wine. The next logical step was being able to sell the wine directly to the customer. So the wine industry is quite interesting in that there's many layers. So you can sell direct to the customer. You can sell wholesale, which means selling direct to a restaurant or a bottle shop, or you can go through a distributor. Now, if you go through a distributor, there's so many levels of margin that need to be added on before it gets to the end customer. So because we're small, we said, well, we really want to cut out those middle layers and sell direct as much as possible. And that's what makes the business viable for us. So having the cellar door, which we put in in 2015, gave us an avenue to introduce the brand to customers direct at the source. And so how long has the winery been here? Well, the vineyard was planted in 2000, 2001. So we're coming up to 22 years since the vines went into the ground. The property probably would have been a lot larger back in the 1800s when it was first established. We think the farmhouse is probably around 1880s and, you know, typical of rural properties, particularly ones close to town like we are, it's been carved up over the years. And when we came, the area where the vines are now planted was pastoral. So it had never been used for orcharding, which is quite typical here in Orange. A lot of the orchards were replaced with 
wine grapes. So it was a bare paddock and together with my parents, we did it as a family project, putting the all the trellising systems, the irrigation and the grapes into the ground. And it wasn't until 2015 that we put the cellar door in and launched our label and our brand. Oh, so it's a family business. How did you guys start it all? Well, it was started by my parents, Nick and Dion, and we came on board. So we being my partner and I, James, on a full-time basis in 2017. So we had jobs in Sydney and gave up those jobs to come here and take over the property and develop and grow the business into what it is today. So being the first vineyard that we've done on the podcast, I thought it'd be a good idea to give the listeners a bit of background info on the production of wine grapes. So maybe can you start off with a calendar of operations? The first thing when we're talking about calendar here in Orange, the thing that makes us unique is that we're high altitude. To grow grapes in the Orange wine region, you actually need to be growing above 600 metres in elevation. And that's quite unique in Australia. I don't think there's any other regions that are defined by elevation. Our vineyard sits at 950 metres above sea level and there are vineyards in the region above 1,000 metres. So that elevation sitting up here on the tablelands means that we have a beautiful, cool climate. And our growing season or calendar is quite different to other warmer regions in New South Wales. Generally, we're harvesting in March, but in the cooler years that we've just had, the cooler, wetter years, we were taking grapes off in April. So it really starts from winter where the pruning happens. As I mentioned, generally August, September for us is when we do the winter prune. And there's a lot of maintenance that happens during those winter months repairing the wires, the trellising, the irrigation, and getting the vineyard in great shape ready for the next growing season. In that winter prune, we take the canes and lay them down on the wire and that sets up the grapes for the next growing season. So in October, we go through what we call bud burst and that coincides here in Orange with our Orange Wine Festival. So a good reason to celebrate. Perfect timing, yep. From there, we have fruit set around December and we generally are harvesting in March. So through the summer, it's very intensive. There's a lot of time in the vineyard. We're doing things like lifting wires to support the grape vines as they grow. We're starting to do some leaf plucking, which helps with the airflow through the vines to reduce disease pressure. And then we'll start also trimming as well. So our vineyard runs from north to south, south being the Mount Knobolus end. On the eastern side of the vineyard, we tend to trim a little bit more to allow the morning sun to get onto the grapes. And then on the western side, we grow a little bit more leaf cover. So don't trim as much to protect from the harsher afternoon sun. So aspect would be such an important thing in viticulture. And we're starting to see people change the aspect or the orientation of vineyards to address some of the warming conditions that we're experiencing. So it's definitely interesting to see different types of trellising techniques and orientation being adopted and trialled throughout the industry as well. Something also that I noticed driving into the the vineyard today was all of the biosecurity signs and posters that you had up. Like you've obviously been on a, a small scale with lots of tourists coming in. You guys are probably really good conduit for that biosecurity message. 
We do try and share that message. It's really important not only to our business, but to all the businesses in our region and across the state. There are other states that are experiencing significant disease pressure and that can often result in having vineyards having to be removed and replanted at a great expense. So if we can educate customers and visitors coming into the vineyard about why biosecurity is important, it's going to save us and the industry and the area a lot of time and money and grief. The Instagram of climbing the fence and taking lovely photos through your vineyard is probably not what you want to see, is it? No, I mean, it's a balancing act. One of the things that people come to our region for is to experience agriculture, agricultural life and get close up to and experience where their food is sourced from. You know, we have a lot of cherry orchards. We have a lot of people coming up to pick their own cherries. Here in the vineyard, though, we're quite conscious of trying to say to people, look, admire it, but please don't go inside the vineyard because, you know, you can bring things in on your clothes, on your shoes. And if you want to experience delicious wines, it's best to admire from a distance. Diving a little bit deeper into your diversified business, can you explain to me the makeup maybe in the importance of each section of your business? Because we're in agriculture, like probably all of your listeners, you'll know that weather plays a very big determining factor onto the success or otherwise of your crops. Um, the other thing that we've definitely struggled with over the last few years has been fire and not fire directly coming through the property, but the impact of smoke. I heard a bit about that a few years ago when the big fires were around. What was the term? It's called smoke chain. So we have had two instances. We had one 2018. There was a fire on Mount Canobolis. So when you have prolonged smoke exposure, such as we experienced in 2018, and then with the big bushfires that happened through 19 and 20, that has a chemical reaction with the grapes and it taints the grapes and gives them a sort of acrid flavour and aroma that's quite unpleasant and basically the wines become undrinkable and unsaleable. Jeez, that would be devastating. Yes. Look, it's definitely a knock. And I mean, one of the positives out of that was as a community of grape growers here in Orange, we really worked hard to get to make sure that everyone was supported, could get their grapes tested. So that involved picking the grapes, freezing them and transporting them to South Australia where the laboratory would do the testing for us and then send back the reports. We also had great support from the New South Wales Wine Industry Association as well. So as an industry, we're very strong in supporting one another. But what that made us think about was how to make sure that if those events happen in the future, that the business is robust and can continue to operate, even if we are unable to get fruit off the vines. So that impetus for diversifying your business it's the same sort of regardless of industry, like a, basically a catastrophe strikes and you realise that something needs to change. So that really led us to this idea of market diversification and making sure that we could still continue to keep our team employed and operate regardless of what was happening out in the vineyard. And we just looked around us and said, well, actually one of the best assets we have is right here in front of us and it's the property itself. And so how do we use that more effectively to continue to make the business develop and grow? It's a glorious day here in Orange and a fair bit of rain in the previous few weeks has got it looking absolute picture today. So I can see it's an easy message to sell. 
that really led us to the conclusion that selling and marketing bookable experiences was the way to go. We had the support of Destination New South Wales and they became a really important partner for us in developing what effectively is agri-tourism here at the property. So we went from just offering tastings, which we didn't used to charge for, but now being able to offer bookable experiences online. And that meant that people could come and have different experiences here with us at the property, whether it would be a masterclass to learn more about how the grapes were grown, were made, tours. And then we started to introduce food experiences that would then match with the wines and educate customers about how they could enjoy the wines in different ways. So as any of your experience in your previous work history helped you out in this diversification and sort of expanded business? I think having a business background has really helped. My career has almost gone full circle. So I um, did a business degree, but my major was in tourism. But I really didn't end up staying in tourism at all. I ended up doing MBA and going into financial services for 17 years. So probably not that well prepared for viticulture, but certainly understood how important business diversification and having a strategy and a plan was. And one of the things we did was develop a business strategy and think about where we wanted to be in five years' time and what that would look like and what plans we needed to put in place to achieve that. Now, plans don't always go as you think they're going to go, but it's a really good reference point to look back on and helps us learn from different experiences, things that we might have got right, things that we might have got wrong, And when we can iterate that plan and continues to keep us focused on the goals we've set for ourselves. So the different sections of your business, obviously probably the the actual vines are the most important, but what aspect do you think are you targeting there with your audience? For us, it's really about making a connection with people and for them, it's us personally and our team. So really making them feel welcome There's an opportunity to get to know the customer, but for them also to get to know us and our business and how the wine ends up in the bottle on the table. We really like to explain to people the importance of being able to support local industry, particularly the New South Wales wine industry, but also all the other local producers in the region. And so you really become an advocate for your region and for the state and people really get excited by that passion and enthusiasm that our team has for what we do here, but also what happens in the greater Orange region. Expanding into different sections of your business, I assume that there would have been some trials and tribulations. Like, did you get consultants and advisors in for those different areas or it was just a fair bit of trial and error? It's an interesting point because one thing we have is, and probably many of your listeners would have one of these as a side-by-side vehicle. And we got one of those and we thought, oh, this is going to be fantastic. We'll be able to drive people around the vineyard, show them how the grapes are growing and they can really see a lot more of the property in a smaller amount of time. Well, I mentioned this to our insurance broker and he was like, whatever you do, do not put people in that vehicle. (laughs) So um, great idea at the time. And like, obviously the vehicle is very useful for farm work, but visitors generally don't recommend putting them in, in the vehicle unless yeah, you want to pay excessive amounts of insurance. I think the average insurer would be mortified by what some of the setups that farmers have got with their side-by-sides now. That one was a no, but one, so some things that we have been able to offer people is a picnic hamper experience. And 
it's a reasonably simple thing for us to do. We have so many great producers in the region, lots of lovely local produce, and being able to package that up and present it to customers with a delicious bottle of wine is something that people really enjoy. And that really allows us to utilize the asset that we have, which is the beautiful property, the rural setting. And for a lot of people visiting from the city, that's a beautiful experience and they really, really enjoy it. So you mentioned before that you've got some really old buildings on the farm. What have you done with some of those buildings? So the property was fortunate to have a lot of the old original buildings still in place, horse stables, the old dairy, and that allowed us the opportunity to convert those into a space where we could hold events. So that's anything from a lunch to a conference, weddings. So people really appreciate the rural setting, the rusticness of the space. They can see the history and the connection to the property. And it's given us an amazing revenue stream and allowed us to showcase the property to a whole group of people that otherwise never would have got to have seen it. So you're really, really in that hospitality space and customer services foremost. We always lead with wine and the wine brand. Growing the grapes and making the wine is why we do it. But we also do it because we love showcasing the wine and sharing that with our visitors and our customers. And now being able to showcase and share the property with people is just another exciting aspect of the business. Just now focusing on the winery, can you tell me a bit about what it takes to get grapes into a bottle? Assuming that it's not people with rolled up trousers in bare feet squishing in buckets anymore? Well, that's possible, but probably (laughs) not the easiest and most efficient way to do it. We have a pretty tight process when it comes to harvest. So the most important thing for us is we have a viticulture consultant that works with us and supports James and I in making sure that the fruit is at its best possible condition prior to harvest. That involves a lot of testing of the fruit and also we test by taste as well as by using scientific method. And once we believe the fruit is ripe or coming close to ripe, we get the team in and the fruit is harvested by hand. So that means it's snipped off the vine in the full bunch and those bunches are placed in buckets. And generally we work in half ton bins. They're pulled behind the tractor or on the back of the ute. We fill the bins and then they're moved into the winery where they go through the crush. And how do you decide which wines make the cut or which varieties might be blended, for example, or something like that? Most of our wines, we tend to have as single varieties. And what's most important for us is, and you'll often hear a lot of particularly grape growers say, this is a good wine is made in the vineyard. So the hard work really happens before the fruit gets into the winery. And then our winemaker has the best possible product to work with. So That's the most important part of the winemaking process. The thing that will influence the style of wine that we produce is often our aromatic whites. So things like Riesling, Pinot Gris, Sauvignon Blanc may not have an extended aging process. So they can be in the winery in March and then in the bottle by July, August, depending on the season. Um, So we can get those out to market quite quickly. The production method is predominantly stainless steel. And then for our more complex wines, we start to introduce aging in oak. 
and that can be anywhere from six to 12 months depending on the variety. So that's a much more expensive proposition. For us, all the barrels come from France, so it's particular coopers that we like to use and we like to think of it as a spice rack for winemaking because different forests produce different styles of oak and then the coopers, depending on how the barrel is made, you know, can have light, medium or heavier toasting, yeah, which is the sealing of the barrel. Wow, that's something I've never thought about before. That's, there's so much that goes into it, obviously. Can you tell that I'm much of a novice? <laughs> You'll never look at the barrel at Bunnings <laughs> in the same way again. <laughs> it's already gone on quite a journey before it ends up in the garden centre or in the aisle at Bunnings. Yeah, absolutely. So from a novice tasting perspective, what's something that I should look at in a good wine? I normally just pick off price. Well, that's one way to pick a wine. (laughs) So we like to recommend a little technique and maybe your listeners would like to put this into practice. I mean, sometimes you just want a refreshing drink and other times you want to savour that moment a little bit more and sometimes that would call for a special bottle of wine. So how do you know if a wine is good or whether you like the wine? Whether you like it is probably the most important part of all. And we recommend, first of all, looking at the wine. So does it look good? Does it have a nice colour? Is it pleasing to the eye? When you eat a meal, the first thing you do is you eat with your eyes. You say, does the food look attractive? Well, with wine, it's pretty much the same. The next thing is the reason you see a lot of people in winemaking swirling the glass is to release the aroma. So pop your nose in the glass and does it smell good? And then the next step, taste it. Um, If it tastes good, so it looks good, smells good, tastes good, It's a good wine. It must be good. It must be good. (laughs) So it's a pretty simple four-step process to assess the wine. And at wine shows, judges pretty much go through a similar process, albeit at a much speedier pace. So what are your signature wines? Our signature wines are the aromatic whites, so things like Riesling Pinot Gris, and the ones that we definitely spend a lot of time on would be Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And I talked earlier about that oak and those oak barrels, they don't come cheap. So (laughs) we put a lot of investment into making those wines the best possible wines that we can produce. Each season is different and we like to see the season reflected in the wine as much as possible. So marketing would be a really big aspect of the business. Can you talk me through that a little bit, Nicole? Well, as a small business, our marketing budget is not extensive. So there's a couple of tips and tricks that we've learned. One of them is using consumer-led referrals services. So whether that's Google reviews, TripAdvisor, because even if you or I don't write the reviews ourselves, we certainly use them. And a lot of people rely on that to make a decision about where to visit and what to do. And so that's a great way. Asking for a review doesn't cost you anything, but the result can be really positive in terms of attracting other people to visit your business. Social media is another important platform. And again, a big investment in time, but not a huge cost in terms of outlay. And one of the other things we do is go to the city a lot to present our wines to customers. And we use different festivals and events to do that. We also host dinners at restaurants and it's a way to keep our customer base connected with us and also introduce the brand to people that may not have been able to make it out to Orange previously. They'll certainly plant the seed for them to come in the future and it's a great way for them to see the quality of produce that comes out of the region. 
locally, I know that Orange is known as a real foodie sort of haven with lots of wine weekends. Can you talk about those and how they impact your business a bit? Absolutely. We have some great festivals events calendared through the year. April is Food Week and that's a 10-day festival that celebrates producers of orange and I think it's possibly Australia's longest running um, food festival, which is pretty amazing that it happens here in Orange and that celebrates both our producers and also winemakers. In winter, we have the Fire Festival, which is a great reason for people to come out and experience the cool climate of Orange and enjoy some great food and wine. And then in October is the Orange Wine Festival, which is a month-long celebration of all things Venice. I think that's probably a really good way to finish up. But just before you go, for my final question, I like to ask what you see as the big issue in Australian ag at the moment. I'm really interested to see what someone in a bit of a different industry makes of this one. One of the big challenges that's faced the winemaking industry in Australia was the closure of China as a market. And that has resulted in significant surplus of wine and pressure on producers. That and probably the demand for different types of grapes and the price that growers are able to get for their grapes if they're not an end-to-end producer. So those things are putting some significant pressure on particular areas or regions. But for me personally, the one thing that I'd like to see is people supporting the local industry. So everyone is much more conscious about sustainability. And one of the things that surprises us all the time is how many people drink imported wine. So we have 16 great wine regions here in New South Wales, and those wines have not flown all the way around from the other side of the globe to get to your table. So if there's one tip, I guess it would be to next time that you go into your local store to look for a New South Wales wine and enjoy that with your next meal. That's a great answer. Thanks for that, Nicole. Message received loud and clear. Let's head to the cellar door now. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a great idea. (laughs) Thanks for coming on the podcast today, Nicole. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Today's podcast guest was nominated by you, our podcast audience, as part of our Nominate a Mate program. Some of our best stories are recommended by people like you. So if you've got someone you think would make a great guest speaker on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Just nominate your mate by shooting me an email via the link in this episode show notes or at rowan, R-O-H-A-N dot leach, L-E-A-C-H at L-L-S dot N-S-W .gov.au Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources. We've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.